This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Philippians chapter 2. So just to give you context, again, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. It was a church that he started from scratch uh, and pastored for a while. He moved on, uh, and he finds himself about 10 years later or so in prison for preaching the gospel. And so as he's in prison, he writes a letter of encouragement back to the church at Philippi, and we get to read uh, Paul's mail, and we get to, to see what he wrote to the church at Philippi. And so uh, we've been just been going verse by verse through the book of Philippians uh, for about the last year and a half. We're uh, on message number 38. Uh, we're about halfway through chapter 2 of 6. So I think we're making really good progress. And so um, uh, we're just continuing to go verse by verse and, and pulling the truth out of that. And so these two verses that we're taking a look at, we're going to be in here this Sunday and next Sunday. And so I want to encourage you uh, to, if you haven't heard any of the message so far, get caught up uh, and, and uh, cruise with us. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to really focus on verses 14 and 15, but we'll back, back up to verse number 12 just to give us a little bit of context. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We took a look at last week how salvation is something that takes place on the inside, but it always has external ramifications. Uh, I get saved, and that's a God changing my heart on the inside, but it always works itself out in a real, tangible, practical way that we can latch on to. We took a look at that last week. So uh, verse number 13 or 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our church was probably about 18 months or so old. Uh, we'll, we'll celebrate eight years this October, but in the early days, we were about 18 months old or so, uh, and we had met this couple. Uh, they weren't married. They were coming to our church, and the, uh, the girlfriend was a Christian, and she was trying to turn her life around and start walking with Jesus again. Her boyfriend that she had was not saved, uh, was not a Christian, uh, and just so everybody knows what the Bible says, the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and so it's ne- never good for a saved person to date an unsaved person. It's never good for an unsaved person to, to marry a saved person. God says, Christians should date Christians, Christians should marry Christians, so put that to the side. But this guy, I really wanted to find out his story and find out if he was interested in the gospel and if he could, uh, would be interested in learning more about how to be saved, and so uh, I grabbed lunch with him, and I said, hey man, tell me your story. And he said, well, you know, I grew up here, uh, joined the military, you know, served in Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, went back and did some contract work after that. And uh, he said, you know, I would consider myself an atheist, you know, uh, that uh, I don't believe that there is a God at all. I believe that all we have is what we see. And I asked him a question. I said, tell me this, when did you stop believing? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you haven't always been an atheist. He goes, how do you know that? And I said, because God doesn't believe in atheists. He goes, what does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us that God has revealed himself unto all men so that all men are without excuse. Romans also tells us that God has written his law on our hearts so that we know right from wrong, good from evil, uh, darkness from light automatically. So God doesn't believe in atheists. So when did you stop believing? He sat there for a minute. He goes, I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I said, tell me about that. 
He said, I grew up in church. He said, my, my parents were Christians. Uh, he said, they took us to church every single week. He said, my parents were really involved in youth ministry. And said, we had a, a big youth, uh, youth group at the time. He said, on Wednesday nights, my parents would lead uh, the youth gatherings. Uh, and he said, my, you know, my parents led music. My, my dad would lead music. My mom would, would disciple some of the, the younger girls in our group. We'd always have teenage girls over at our house. And my mom was trying to encourage and help. And my, my dad would kind of lead the group throughout the week and stuff like that. Uh, and he said, church camps, I was always there. I was working in the kitchen with my parents and was helping them run games and things like that. Uh, he said, I even sang in the, the youth worship team and stuff like that. And he said, but about 13, 14 years old, I began to see things for what they really were. What does that mean? He said, I saw my parents would act one way at church. He said, but the second we got in the car, cussing, fighting, talking bad about people, running our pastor down, uh, talking, uh, telling people's things uh, uh, that they said that they wouldn't tell anybody in the car. And he goes, I just been re- began to realize that this whole thing's fake. And he goes, the more that I looked around my church, I realized that everybody was just putting on a show for Sunday. And that throughout the rest of the week, they were living like they weren't Christians. And he said, and I came to the conclusion that church is fake, Christians are fake, and God is fake. And so he said, I quit believing then. And I realized in that moment, man, it hurt me to the core that this person at a young, impressionable, moldable, shapeable age had seen blatant hypocrisy in Christianity and it had ruined him throughout the remainder of his adult life. This guy was probably 30 or so. So we're talking 15, almost 20 years later after he saw these things, was still clinging to the idea that Christianity was fake, Christians are fake, the church is fake, and God is fake. And so I asked him, I said, do you think that I'm a fake? And he sat there for a minute and he goes, well, I haven't seen it yet, but I probably will. I said, man, hey, I appreciate you saying that, I really do. And I said, I'll be the first to tell you that I'm not perfect, but I'm trying really hard just to be like Jesus. And that's the idea that Paul's talking about to the church at Philippi here. Hey, look, you're not perfect and you never will be, but the goal for us is just to live like Jesus. Uh, I've entitled today's message, Authentic Christianity Needed. As we take a look at this passage of Scripture this morning, if you take a look at uh, starting in verse number 14, it says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. And this tells us really just from the get-go that Christians must have an exemplary attitude at all times. You see, the idea that Christians put on a really good show on Sunday or we're Christians on Sunday or we do Christian things on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday we get to kind of do our own thing, that's not a biblical idea whatsoever. That's not biblical Christianity whatsoever. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, you are on duty 24-7, no days off, no breaks, no vacation. And Upon hearing that, you might see, well, well, that's kind of a drag that I don't like ever get a chance to like take a break. Please understand that authentic biblical Christianity is not about just taking your old self and trying to improve it a little bit. It's a change from the inside out. That now I don't have to be somebody, this is who I am. That's the idea behind biblical Christianity. It's not that we're trying really hard to put on a show or trying really hard to be better. It's the fact that God has changed us from the inside out. As we take a look at that, what Paul challenges them with here uh, in this passage, the first thing, do all things without murmurings and disputings. The word murmuring means a complaining spirit. And a complaining spirit expresses dissatisfaction with God and with his perfect plan. When we gripe and complain, we're basically saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. 
When I look at things that didn't work in my favor and I begin to complain and have a crummy spirit about it, I'm basically saying, I don't like God's plan, and if I had my way, I would do things totally differently. And that basically is not, it, to, to have a complaining spirit is to say that God is not sovereign, God doesn't know what he's doing, and God's plan isn't good enough. And if you know anything about the Bible, and if you know anything about our God, you'll know that God's ways are always perfect. We'll know that God's ways are always higher than our ways. God's plans that he has for our life are always greater than these teeny-weeny plans that we've made for ourselves. And if we will just trust God and trust the process. Numbers chapter 11 and verse number 1 is a verse that I quoted to my kids a lot in their growing up years. The children of Israel got mad at God and didn't like what God was doing. Numbers 11, chapter 1 says that the people complained and it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled against them. Man, God hates complainers. God hates complaining. And I don't know about you, but I find it really, really easy to complain. I can always find something to gripe about. I promise you that, right? Always. I can gripe about the weather today. If the weather clears up, I can find, out, uh, find a way to gripe about the fact that the weather cleared up, you know? I can gripe if there's traffic. I can gripe if there's no traffic, you know? I can find always something to complain about, but God says that shouldn't be the spirit of a Christian. We're to do all things without murmuring. The word murmuring means grumbling or complaining. And I, I never required my kids to remember the, the rest of Numbers 11, but here's what he says. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. <laughs> like, God was so mad at their complaining, he just killed them. Like, done. I'm thankful that God's a little bit more gracious with us, wouldn't you say? I'm thankful that when I have a complaining spirit, God doesn't just zap me on the spot, but he totally could if he wanted to. Because having a complaining spirit or griping and moaning about our current situation is just a dissatisfaction with the hand that God's dealt us. So we can always flip that to praise and say, I'm not really sure why God's doing this, but I trust him. Look, over the last four weeks, I sat in a hospital room with a 12-year-old girl who laid in a bed that couldn't get out on her own power. And I, I never once complained to God about that. I said, I'm not sure why God would do this, but I trust him. This doesn't feel good right now, but I know God's doing something in me and for me right now. I don't know what it is. I remember when uh, Makila came home on Tuesday and she sat down on the couch in our living room and she says, Dad, I'm never going to say that just sitting on the couch at home is boring ever again. <laughs> and I said, can I record that when you say that? Because I'm going to need that later. But, but even for her, she realized, hey, being at home and just sitting on the couch is such a gift. And I believe that God has not finished the work that he wants to do through this time in our life. But the last thing I need to do is complain about it. Angela and I sat down on the couch together on, on Friday for the first time in four weeks. Just sat down on the couch beside each other. I don't ever want to take that for granted again. And so I know that it wasn't my plan. I would never want this. And I, I got 10,000 things I could gripe about, but I, but I got 100 things that I could praise about. And so to have a complaining spirit displeases the Lord and complaining ultimately casts blame on God for my unhappiness. Look, we might not like our situation, but we can always find something to praise God for. We might not have ever wished these things upon ourselves, but we can always find the good things that God's doing in our life as a result of these things. I would encourage you, if you're going through a difficult time and you find yourself with a complaining spirit, read through the book of Psalms. Oh, Psalms will rock your socks, I'm telling you. 
Because Psalms, you find a guy who's the lowest of the low, yet he still chooses to praise God. You see a guy that is running literally for his life, yet he still chooses to praise God. You, you find a guy who's had victory after victory, and he chooses to praise God. And I know that if you read the book of Psalms, you'll find yourself all through the entire book. It's good stuff. But a complaining spirit says, I'm unhappy and it's all God's fault. The other flip side of having a negative spirit is having an argumentative spirit and argumentative disposition is an indication of pride. Again, if you take a look at uh, verse number 14, do all things without murmurings, that's complaining or grumbling. The word disputing is that when Paul wrote this, he wrote it in the Greek language and the word he used was the word dialogimos, which is where we get our word for dialogue. And the idea of disputings is always having to have something to say. Do you know somebody like that that always has to have the last word? That it's over and done with, put to bed, and this person says, oh, and by the way, I just want you to know, and it's just like, oh, I see what you're doing there. You find somebody who you know, has no reason to really say anything else, but they always have to have something to say. There's really no argument to be had, but this person wants to start an argument or wants to start a dialogue or wants to talk through this. I don't really know if there's anything to talk through. It always has to have some reason to argue and fight and complain. Please understand that this is a spirit of pride inside of us. And God says, everything that we do as Christians, we're not going to gripe, we're not going to complain, we're not going to argue. That's not what we do. And this is difficult for us sometimes because we think, well, I want to I be able to say my part. Well, I want to be able to, to talk about how this isn't my fault. Please understand that that is a spirit of pride. That being willing to say, got it, on it, never happened again. When we receive reprimands, nobody likes to be reprimanded, but when you receive a reprimand, you say, got it, never happened again. But you know those people who are like, oh, it was awful today. Traffic was so bad. It was so bad today. And then when I got to, to Starbucks, my mobile order wasn't even ready, and I had to stand in line. That's why I was 15 minutes late. I mean, I tried to be early, but it wasn't my fault. It's just like, hey, just zip it. No arguments, no complaining. Just take your lumps, move on. Christians don't look for drama. Have you ever known those people who, if there's not drama, they'll find something to gripe about? They'll find something to stir up strife about? The Bible says we're not to be people like that. The Bible says in Proverbs 15, verse number 18, a wrathful man stirreth up strife, but he that is slow to anger appeaseth strife. Some of you need to commit that verse to memory for your own marriage. Because a wrathful man, an angry person, they're constantly looking for ways to stir up strife. I've seen people get in arguments over a gallon of milk. I've seen people get in arguments over a parking space. I've seen people get in arguments over, you know, who was right and who was wrong 10 years ago. I've seen people get, I've seen people get in serious arguments over board games before. Can you believe that? That people are so competitive and some of you are sitting there going like, yeah, get them, pastor. Tell them all about it. You know good and well that's you, right? But man, what is, what is the root of that? It's a spirit of pride. And we need to identify that in ourselves so that we can cut it out, off, rip it out. Because the Bible says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination in him. And the first one that he lists is pride. God hates pride. The Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. That if there's a fight, drama, argument, doesn't matter if it's in your home, in your workplace, or somebody else, the root of that is always pride. And so we as Christians can't walk in pride. We must walk in humility. We can't run around with an argumentative spirit 
I love what Romans chapter 12, verse number 18 says. It says, if it be possible, as much life in you, live peaceably with all men. Have you ever met that person that regardless of what you do, you'll never have peace with them? They're just always looking for a fight. That if you even apologize for something that they think you might have done wrong, they're going to find something wrong with your apology and why your apology wasn't good enough. And they're going to be constantly looking for a reason to argue. Have you ever met somebody like that before? The Bible says, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Hey, that guy hates my guts, and I know it. I've tried to make things right with him. He refuses to accept my apology. He refuses to be kind. But I'll tell you this. I have no ill will towards him. I know that he hates my guts, but I'm not mad at him. And from my side, everything's cool. That's what the Bible talks about when it means live peaceably with all men as much as lieth in you. That there's some people who you'll just never have peace with, but from your side, everything should be cool as a cucumber because you've done everything that you can to not stir up strife and not stir up drama. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 16, verse number 17. He says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they as such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches to see the hearts of the simple. Now Paul takes it up a notch. He's not just talking about getting along with folks at work, and getting along with people in the community, and, and being nice to people at church. He takes it up and says, hey, if there's people in the church that are spreading false doctrine, or do anything that's contrary to the Bible, mark that person and step, take a step back from them. If you notice, God places a high importance on peace. Peace in the home, peace in the community, peace in the church especially. And so to do that, we have to be Christians that are willing to walk in humility. He goes on in verse number, uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, verse number, chapter number four, verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Hey, let all of your angry talk be done with that. All of your filthy words that you use or hateful things that you would say, be done with that. Let all that be put away and be forgiving. Well, how am I supposed to forgive? Forgive as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. How did God forgive you? He forgave you unconditionally. He forgives you every single time you need it. He forgives you when you don't even ask for forgiveness. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, he's loving, and he's the God of 10 million second chances. So that's how you forgive. Now, God showed his greatest forgiveness upon the cross for us. And, and if you're here for the first time, you need to get this. I don't really care if you get anything else today. It'll be helpful for you, but this is the most important. Know this, that we are born into this world at odds with God. We're born as sinners into this world. We are automatically born enemies of God so that when we die, we are responsible 100% for our own sinful condition. If you sinned, you owe God something and somebody's got to pay. And the Bible says the only way that you can pay for your sin, the wrong that you've done, is to pay for it yourself. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Here's what we deserve. When you die, I deserve, you deserve to stand before God in judgment, and we all will. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And when we stand before God, God's righteous judgment is you must pay for your sin. And the only way that you can do that is to 
spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell that burns with real fire for all of eternity. There's no getting out, no second chances. That's what we deserve. That's what I deserve because I've sinned against God and God says this is the price. But if someone who owed God nothing would be willing to pay the price for us, God would accept their payment for our sin. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, get this, Christ died for us. That I deserve to die, I deserve to go to hell, but Jesus died in my place. That's critical. Because remember, God says somebody has to pay for your sin. Either you can pay or you can allow Jesus to pay for you. Those are your only two choices. I could never pay for your sin. I owe God my own sin debt. I couldn't pay for yours. There's no church in the world that could pay for your sin debt because a church cannot pay for anyone else's sins. I can't do enough good stuff to make up for all the wrong that I've done. It doesn't work that way. And just like it doesn't work in a a judicial court where if I get a speeding ticket, I can't go to the judge and say, well, I swept the sidewalk in front of my house this week. Does that count for something? No, you've broken the law. Here's the consequence. But God has allowed someone to pay for us. And Jesus, the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You see, I was supposed to die, but Jesus died in my place. But here's here's the important part that all of this revolves on. You've got to make that decision for yourself who's going to pay. You're welcome to pay if you like. It means separation from God forever in a place called hell. Worst thing that could ever happen to you, guaranteed. Or you can choose to allow Jesus to pay the price for you. And if you do that, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have to believe that he died in your place. You have to realize that you cannot make it to heaven on your own, and you're putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you do that, you can be saved. Jesus said in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John goes on at the end of John chapter three to say this, he who hath the son hath life. That if you've been saved or born again, please understand you have eternal life and nobody can ever take that away from you, yourself included. But he says, he who hath the son hath life, but he that hath not the son hath not life and the wrath of God abides on him, which means God's punishment is on your shoulders and the moment that you die, you'll endure that punishment for all of eternity. But you don't have to. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance of your sin is all God requires of you. If you'd be willing today to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and I'm trusting in him to save me and forgive me of my sins. You can be saved like that. You don't have to become a Baptist. It's not about joining our church. It's not about being baptized or catechized or go through a religious experience. It's about knowing for sure your sins are forgiven. And friend, if you're not born again, you need to be born again today. Jesus says in John chapter three, verse number three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And here's the thing, that forgiveness that God gives you, he gives it freely with no strings attached. He gives it to you because he's gracious. Why does that matter? Because Ephesians 4 says we forgive as God has forgiven us. I can live at peace with other people because I'm giving forgiveness with no strings attached. Well, what if they do something again? They're going to do something again and I'll forgive them then too. You know why? Because I'm going to sin again and God's going to forgive me. That's the same level of forgiveness I give to other people. 
And so if you've never been saved, today is your opportunity to be born again. If we are born again, we as Christians live with an exemplary attitude. We don't gripe, we don't complain, we don't sit around and stir up strife and arguments with other people. We live with an exemplary attitude and Christians should also have excellent character. We're just different. And you say, well, I know Christians that aren't different. Well, then they need to change and, and get on board because God has called us to be different from the world that we live in. Take a look at verse number 14 again. Do all things without murmuring and disputings. And verse number 15 says this, that ye may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. If you take a look at that, the first thing that he says here is that Christians should be blameless. <clears throat> what that means is any accusations against our character will be unfounded. Any charge that somebody wants to, to make against our integrity our willingness to do the right thing, it just doesn't stick because we as Christians hold ourselves to a higher standard to be blameless. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 3, Jesus is talking to a group of folks and please understand if we're going to help the world be better, if we're going to challenge people to live under God's forgiveness, if we're going to challenge people to live according to the Bible, we've got to make sure that we ourselves are holding ourselves to the same standard. Because it's very difficult for me to challenge people to live by the biblical standard when I'm not living by the biblical standard myself. And Jesus said this, and this is one of the most misapplied, misunderstood, and most pulled out of the back pocket things that Jesus has ever said that people misapply and misappropriate. Jesus said this, if you're going to go help your brother that has a speck of sawdust in his own eye, be sure to check out the log that's in your own eye before you help him. And Jesus says, if you're going to judge, make sure that you understand that you're going to be judged according to the same standard in which you judge. And people who are, don't know the Bible, first of all, will say, well, the Bible says judge not, and you're judging me and saying that I'm a sinner. The Bible says judge not. Read the rest of the Bible. Read the rest of the passage. It says that we don't have the right to judge, but God's word has already done the judgment for us. If a person's living in sin, I don't have to tell them they're living in sin. God's word does. And I'm not judging them according to my standard. God's word is judging them according to God's standard. Does that make sense? I'm not the judge. You don't have to appease me. But if you're living in sin, I'll tell you you're living in sin according to God's word. But I have to be careful and make sure that if I'm going to tell you that you're living in sin according to God's word, you can't flip that around on me and say, hey, well, what about you? And I say, well, don't worry about me. I got to make sure that my life is blameless so that when I call you to follow Jesus in obedience, righteousness, and holiness, that you can look at my life and go, well, you're not asking me to do anything that you yourself aren't doing. And so Jesus says, make sure that if you go to help somebody to be more like Jesus, that you yourself are living at the standard that you're calling other people to live at. That's what it means to live blameless. Look, every single week of the world, I challenge you to live like a real authentic Christian. I challenge you every single week to walk with Jesus, walk in holiness, walk in righteousness, know Jesus, love Jesus, and allow that love to come out of your life in every area of your life. And I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not actively pursuing myself. Am I perfect? No, but I'm trying. And that's the idea of living 
blamelessly. Secondly, he goes on verse number 15, that you live blameless. The word harmless there means innocent and pure. It comes to the idea that we're not involved in sin. Our life isn't a filthy life. Our life is a life that reflects God's goodness. When it, when it says in verse number 15 that we be harmless, it's talking about an innocency. I love what Romans chapter 16, verse number 19, Paul challenges the church at Rome, which he's never been to before. He says, your obedience is come abroad unto all men, and I'm glad therefore in your half. You guys obey the Bible, and I'm thankful for that. But here's what he says, but yet, <laughs> I'm patting you on the back, but I'm also challenging you here. I would have you to be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. I want you to know like the back of your hand all the good things, and I want you to be totally ignorant and clueless, clueless when it comes to sin and the evil things of this world. Totally clueless. I remember my son Thatcher, he was probably about 16 years old or so, we were walking through downtown LA, and we went past what would be referred to as a smoke shop, or uh, when I was in high school, they were called head shops because they would often have like big Grateful Dead posters in the windows and Bob Marley posters and stuff like that. And there was a big six-foot water bong there. And he walked past and he goes, Ted, what is that? And I go, what? He goes, that thing. And I said, it's a bong. And he says, what do you do with it? And I was like, yes! 16 years old, a junior in high school, has no idea what a bong is or what to do with it. We've made it as parents. Like, we're like, good. Yes! Hey, look, I was like probably eight or nine when I knew what a bong was and how you use it. I never actually did. Never, never used marijuana in my life, but I knew what you did with it. I knew what it was. But here he was at 16 years old, and people might look at that and go, well, he's so sheltered, the second he gets out into the world, he's going to know all about that, and you should teach him at home. And so the Bible says, be simple concerning that which is evil. I'm not going to sit down a 16-year-old and show him pictures on the internet of what a bong is and how he shouldn't use it. Come on, really? We've had members of our own family criticize us because all oh, your kids, when they get out, out of the house, they're going to want to drink alcohol. They should learn to drink responsibly at home. Really? I'm hoping they never touch it for the rest of their lives because alcohol ruins people's lives. Look, I can give you a list of a dozen people that you could call up this afternoon that could tell you how alcohol has completely wrecked their life, their marriage, their family, and everything under the sun. And so... <laughs> The idea that I'm going to introduce my kids to alcohol at home so they can drink responsibly? No, bad idea. I'm not going to try to, to indoctrinate my kids into the world's way of thinking so that they can be worldly and know more about the world that's out there. I'm trying to protect my kids from the influence of the world. I want them to be simple concerning evil. Look, I don't need to know... I, look, if you put a gun to my head and said, name five songs that are on the top 50 billboards, top 50 right now, just pull the trigger and get it over with. I don't know. It's not my thing. It's not my, what I've surrounded my life with. Because I'm not neck deep in the things of the world. I'm trying to separate from the world so that I can change the world. And you can't change the world when you're neck deep in the culture and have immersed yourself in that. It doesn't work that way. And so again, the Bible says that we should be simple concerning evil. That's why it grinds my gears to no end that Christians engage in TV shows and entertainment that are wholly and, and completely, totally opposite to the Word of God. 
Several years ago, the, the TV show Game of Thrones, a lot of Christians were involved in that, watching that show. Look, unsaved people says this is softcore and hardcore pornography. It's misogyny and it's violence against women. Unsaved people say that. Why are Christians watching that? I don't know. And look, I don't know what's popular on Netflix these days or what you're watching, but I'm telling you this, if it's in opposition to the Word of God, knock it off. We're called to be innocent and pure. And sometimes Christians will say things like, well, we've got to wait till the kids go to bed before we watch this show. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, if the kids can't enjoy it, maybe you shouldn't be either. Just a thought. You say, well, that's pretty hardcore, Pastor. <laughs> Christians are called to be blameless, innocent, and pure. That's pretty hardcore in my book. And look, if you can't, if you can't handle it, maybe you should cut off your, your Netflix account. If you can't handle pornography, and nobody can handle it, put it that way, but if you can't abstain from pornography, maybe you should get a, yourself a little flip phone that doesn't have access to the internet. Maybe you should put your computer in the, the room that everybody has access to. Maybe you should have somebody put a password so that you can't, can't have unfettered access to the internet. And people say, well, that's pretty extreme. Hey, look, here's what Jesus says. If your right hand offends you, what should you do? I think that's pretty extreme. If your right hand causes you trouble, just go ahead and cut it off. It's better to live with a stump than to live with sin, is what Jesus said. <laughs> I didn't say it. I'm just telling you what he said. He said, it's pretty extreme. I agree. Christians aren't called to live like the rest of the world. Blameless, innocent, pure. It goes on to say the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, you could say they're the children of God, without rebuke. The idea here is that we would be unblemished. There's not an area of our life that is a dark spot on our life. And sometimes people will look at this and they say, well, pastor, well, things I've done in the past, I'm not proud of, or, you know, uh, I, I did this when, when, when I was away from the Lord and stuff like that, I'm not proud of that. That's not talking about that. Because the Bible says that when we come to Jesus Christ, we're washed clean. <laughs> my past is the past, it's over and done, but that's not a blemish on my life going forward. This blemish is sin that I continue to be involved in. This is things that are currently in my life that, put a dark spot on my walk with Christ and my testimony before Christians. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but we should be holy and without blemish. That the church, God's people, God's children should be without blemish. You know who was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish? Jesus so maybe, basically this is just saying to live without rebuke is to live like Jesus. And the idea of living without rebuke means I don't need somebody to call me out on my sin. You know why? Because I'm calling myself out on my own sin. I'm mature enough that I know my own shortcomings and I'm calling myself out. I don't need somebody else to tell me that I'm wrong. And here's the thing. When somebody does approach me and tell me that I'm wrong, what, what's my response to that? Thank you. I really want to work on that. I want to be better. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Please pray for me. I struggle with pride, and, and that was just evidence of my pride right there. And if you could pray for me, I would really appreciate that. That's without living without rebuke. That's living innocent, pure, blameless. And he said, that's crazy. Nobody could live like that. You're right. You don't have what it takes to live like that. I don't have what it takes to live like that. That's why, again, if you look at the, the passage that we're in, if you back up to verse number 13, Again, because we're in 14 and 15, but verse 13 comes before that. For it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
<laughs> the work that needs to happen in me to make this happen, to live blameless, innocent, pure, without rebuke, without spot or blemish, the power to do that lies in me. It's the power of God working in me and through me. I can't just work harder, do better, try more. It's the work that God wants to do. And please understand, if you look at this and you say, Pastor, this just isn't me. I can't do this. I'm not cut out this way. And many times people don't want to follow Jesus because they say, I don't, I don't feel like I could ever really measure up. Please understand, God doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect continual growth in sanctification. We talked about sanctification last week. We're not going to, to, to expound on that any further. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. It's separating yourself from sin. And the idea is that you and I, not perfect, but we're continuing to grow day by day. When my sin is identified, I say, I got it, I'm on it, I'm putting this to death, and I'm going to try to move forward. That's the idea here. But unfortunately, many Christians want to play Christian on Sunday. And many times Christians, well-meaning Christians, will say things like, well, we want to do this because we know it's good for the kids. <laughs> Please understand, if there's one demographic in the world that is perfect for sniffing out hypocrisy, it's children. <laughs> kids know. They just know. And again, when you come to church and you put on a really good show and you go home and you take off the mask, your kids know. And please understand, that's making an impact on them for the rest of their life. You're not just raising kids, you're shaping and molding them into the people that they will be for the rest of their lives. You can't afford hypocrisy because hypocrisy destroys our effectiveness. Hypocrisy hurts everything that it touches. Speaking of the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says this, they've corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They're a perverse and crooked generation. <laughs> he said, these guys call themselves my kids, but they don't look like my kids. They call themselves my children, but they're not acting like my children. They're a crooked and perverse generation. And Paul, in this passage, which we'll take a look at next week, he hearkens back to that and says that we're to live as harmless, blameless, innocent, pure, without rebuke in a crooked and perverse nation. When we talk about hypocrisy, hypocrisy by the dictionary definition is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Hypocrisy, I say that I am this, yet I know that I am not this. The biblical word that's used for hypocrisy when Jesus talks to the scribes and Pharisees, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. The Greek word that Jesus uses in that passage there is the idea of one who wears a mask. It was one who would be in the theater and would put on a mask and portray to be someone that they were not. And oftentimes, many times, Christians will put on the mask of being a Christian We'll come to church, we'll say, hey, how you doing? Praise the Lord. Hey, I'm gonna sing this song. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. <laughs> I'm wearing a mask, nobody knows if I'm singing or not, so I really don't have to sing. This is awesome. I might even bring my Bible. I might even pull out a sheet of paper and act like I'm taking notes. I got my phone out. I've got the Hui Kala app installed. I'm on my phone over here taking furious notes. 
But as soon as all this is over, I'm going to go back to doing what I want to do. I'm going to go back to living my life the way that I want to live it. And I'm really just here for the show. And believe it or not, this is incredibly common amongst Christians. I might even be talking to you this morning. I don't know. I hope not. But a hypocrite knows who they are. They're just really good at putting on a show. They'll come, they'll nod their head, they'll hear what, they, what has to be said, knowing full well that you have no intention of actually following Jesus or putting any of this into practice. You just want to make sure that you keep up the appearance. I grew up in a church in, in, in Kentucky that was very much about appearance. Want to make sure that you're there. Want to make sure that people see you there. Man, come Easter Sunday, make sure you got a big hat on, you got a special dress, come Easter Sunday, and make sure that everybody sees it. We're not here really to worship Jesus. I mean, we'll nod along. You know, in the South, you might say amen, or you might pull a hanky out of your purse and wave it in the air, something like that. But we're going to go back, to, after all this is over, we're going to go back and just continue doing what we're doing. That's hypocrisy. And hypocrisy damages everyone around. And so, so many times I've talked with people and tried to have gospel conversations and invite people to church. And at least two dozen times I've been told by somebody, I don't go to church because there are so many fill in the blank for me. Hypocrites. And depending on the type of relationship that I have with this person, depending on the, how light or heavy the conversation is, I'll sometimes say, well, you can come. We've always got room for one more. And so if it's not a good conversation or if it's heavy, I don't say that. But, uh, but here, here's the idea. Somebody somewhere sometime has been burned by someone who claimed to be something but didn't live it. And who did that hurt? It hurt that person, but who else did it hurt? It hurt the cause of Christ. It hurt real Christians who are really trying to get the work done. It damages everyone. And so we take a look at hypocrisy. Sometimes people say, well, I don't want to be fully engaged as a Christian because I'll probably end up being a hypocrite. I don't want to be fully engaged as a Christian because I know I'm going to mess up at some point and I can't be perfect. And please understand, being a Christian isn't about being perfect. But there's a difference between a hypocrite and a Christian who struggles against sin. Please understand the idea of struggling against sin means that there's a fight currently going on. I'm not a perfect man. I struggle with pride. Does that make me a hypocrite? Struggling with pride doesn't make me a hypocrite because I'm struggling. I'm fighting against it. You know what I've done? I have verses that deal with pride committed to memory. He that thinketh he stand, take heed lest he fall. I've got that committed to memory. Only by pride cometh contention. I've got that committed to memory. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I've got that committed to memory. And every single day I wake up and I pray and I ask God for wisdom and I ask God to help me to walk in humility today. When somebody says something that I don't like, I immediately in my mind think to myself, does that rub me the wrong way because of my pride? I'm always thinking that way. When somebody walks out of church and they say, Pastor, there's a great message today. I gotta stop myself and say, the Bible's a good book and that message today was 100% plagiarized. I just told you what the Bible said. I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. You know why? Because I know my pride would say, huh, that's pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> Probably not one of my best who's <laughs> up there, right? That's what my pride wants to do, but I fight my pride every single day. I fight it. I know it. I'm struggling against it. 
But the hypocrite says, I've always fought against pride and I'm just tired of fighting against it. This is just who I am. This is who I've become. This is who I'll always be. It just is what it is. And I'm going to try to hide my pride, lest anybody call me out. For the hypocrite, you know what their number one fear is? Being found out what's behind the mask. And the hypocrite lives in fear that someone will actually know what's going on on the inside. And so they work really hard to build these fences and boundaries that nobody can cross lest they get inside and find out what's really going on. But for me, I fight against it every single day. There's a difference. Unless we make peace with our sin and just say, well, my sin is just who I am. It's okay to be this way. Then we cross the line into hypocrisy. When I say, my sin's not that big of a deal, at least I'm not doing X, and I begin to make excuses for my sin as if it's not a big deal, yet still the whole while claiming to adhere to God's standard, I've crossed the line and I've now become a hypocrite. And this is why, again, when we take a look at the things that are taking place in our nation right now of, of same-sex uh, relationships and homosexuality and uh, the LGBT movement and things along those lines, when people say things like, this is just who I am, it's who I've always been, I can't remember a time that I wasn't this way, I can't change who I'm attracted to, I would have never chosen this for myself. And people say, well, how can you as a Christian be so unloving to tell that person that they're wrong? I don't say that they're wrong. The Bible says that they're wrong, and I just agree with the Bible. But secondly, please understand this. I can't remember a time that I didn't struggle with pride. I've always been this way. I would have never chosen to be a proud person. I can tell you of how destructive pride has been in my own life and in the lives of the people that I love, and I would have never chosen this for myself. So what do I do? This is just who I am? Or do I say, I recognize my sinful condition before God and I submit myself to his authority? Again, fill in the blank with any sin in the Bible. Anger, pride, gluttony, laziness, slothfulness. We could all say, this is just my personality. This is just who I am. It's who I'll always be. Or we can say, God has saved me and wants me to change and he's calling me to a higher standard than what I hold myself to and I've got to change to get on his level. That's where we live as Christians. And so again, nurture versus nature when it comes to things like the LGBTQ movement, I don't know that at the end of the day it matters. We are all born in sin with different attractions to different types of sin. But at the end of the day, it's all sin and we can never excuse sin because it's just natural to us. Of course, sin is natural because sin is woven into our nature as human beings. But we can no longer make excuses for sin or hide our sin or make peace with our sin. You see, a hypocrite is simply playing an outward part of being a Christ follower while still living a sinful lifestyle and having made peace with their own sin. That's what a hypocrite is. A hypocrite isn't a Christian who's just trying to do better but fails from time to time. A hypocrite is someone who knows who they are, who knows that they're a fake, who knows that they're a phony, that they're a counterfeit Christian, that they're putting on a facade that looks really good on the outside but inside is empty. 
don't know if you ever had the chance to go to, to Disneyland before and walk through downtown Disney and there's all the different shops outside. And then you walk through Main Street Disney, right? Oh, it's amazing. They got music playing. Churros at Disneyland. Hello. If you've never had a churro at Disneyland, you're missing out. Oh, it's so good. And you're walking through, through Main Street Disneyland. You see the, the castle up in front. And the first time I went, I thought, oh, I can't wait to get inside the castle. How awesome is that going to be? And if you're laughing, you already know the story, right? The castle isn't a real castle. You just walk through the castle, right? There's nowhere in the castle to go. And then you realize that all this cool stuff on Main Street as you walk down, a lot of it's fake. There's doors that don't open. There's pathways that lead to nothing. And there's things that look like on the outside something, but really they're nothing. And that Main Street Disney, while it's awesome to look at, it's a blast to be in the middle of a parade there and stuff like that, there's not a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of gift shops and a lot of tchotchkes to buy. There's nothing really actually going on there. And it leads to the castle, which there's nothing inside the castle. It's just kind of a path to the rest of the park. Hypocrisy is like that. It's a door that looks really good, but there's nothing behind the door. It's a facade. You look at like, oh, here's this big, beautiful castle, but there's nothing in the castle whatsoever. And the castle just leads you to somewhere else that doesn't really, wasn't really where you're trying to go. That's what hypocrisy is. I'm putting on a show. I know it's a show. I know I'm a fake, but I got to try to keep up the appearance so that everybody thinks that I look really good. That's hypocrisy. That's damaging to Christianity. That's damaging to your own soul. That's why. Holy, blameless, pure, innocent, without rebuke. Because we can't afford hypocrisy. As all this... COVID stuff has unfolded in our world today. We've seen in our government and politicians, hypocrisy. Stay at home. Don't go out under any circumstances whatsoever. Meanwhile, we'll be, be attending parties, lavish gatherings. You should wear a mask everywhere you go. We won't wear a mask when we're at our private parties that we're going to that you shouldn't have. You should stay at home, not travel. Meanwhile, we'll travel and go to other places, but you can't. We look at that and we go, wait, 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 hypocrisy. You say this is the standard, but you're doing something else. And, and we get frustrated by that. Please understand that unsafe people, when we say this is the standard, but we live over here, they're like, wait, no, 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 no. You're not going to hold me to this standard that you yourself are not holding yourself to. That's hypocrisy. But you see, a mature Christian is truly seeking to live like Jesus. All the while enduring victories and failures, but daily, Waging war against our sinful proclivities. What does that mean? That means I'm not perfect. I never will be. But every single day I wake up in a fight. Some days I have a lot of wins. Some days I have some losses, but I continue to press forward. I'm not giving up. I don't quit. I'm not making excuses for my sin. It is what it is. I've confessed it to God. He's forgiven me. And I'm trying to move forward. That's not hypocrisy. That's just regular, mature Christian living. And that's what we got to strive for. I know what my shortcomings are. And I'm working to fix them day by day by the work of God in me and through me. And by the grace of God, I'm not the same guy that I was six months ago. And by the grace of God, six months from now, I'll be a better man than I am today. That's the idea that I'm constantly moving forward. That's not hypocrisy. That's just everyday Christian living. Some days you hit the target, some days you're a little off target. But I'm continuing to push, I'm continuing to move forward, I'm continuing to fight against sin. 
But we need to understand that hypocrisy harms the name of Jesus. It hurts Christianity. I'm uh, deeply grieved by the things that are taking place in our nation right now. It was um, hurtful and shameful to hear about the murders that took place in Atlanta this past week. It's been, I, I skim news. I don't, I, can't, I don't have the stomach to read it anymore, but I skim news. And the things that I read in headlines and subheaders hurt my heart. But do you realize that when these murders took place in less than 12 hours, less than 12 hours, through social media and media and talking to people and stuff like that, they connected the dots that the shooter was a white, 21-year-old Christian male who had performed hate crime murders against Asian Americans. Did you see how quick those, they connected those dots? White, Christian, male. Done. Who did that hurt? Oh, it hurt everybody. Everybody's damaged by this. Was it a hate crime? We don't know. But murder is murder in God's book. It doesn't matter your reason for it. Anybody that would call themselves a Christ follower and commit these heinous acts is not a true Christ follower. You say, are you saying this guy's not a Christian? I'm not saying whether he's saved or not. I'm saying he's not a Christ follower. And that hypocrisy hurt his community. It hurts the lives that were lost. It hurts every person that was known by the lives that were lost. It hurt that community. It hurt him, his parents. Again, just the headlines that I skimmed, his parents called and turned him in. I can't imagine the grief of his family. But you know what? It hurt me because I call myself a Christian. And you just did something that makes Christians look bad and you're not even really living like a Christian. That hurts me. Not to mention the pain that I feel that these things are happening in our nation. It just shouldn't happen. But now, you know who, who ultimately is hurt by this? It hurts the heart of God and it hurts the cause of Christ. You know, just the same, every act of Muslim terrorism automatically makes every Muslim a terrorist. Every Christian who performs a, some heinous act, now all Christians are hate mongers and racists now. All Christians are, uh, you know, gun-loving conservatives who want to go out and kill everybody that's not just like them. It makes Christians look bad. When Christians call homosexuals derogatory terms, it makes all Christians look bad. Because I love everybody. Period. End of the story. I don't care what, what color you are, race, eth ethnicity, what group you identify with, how you identify. I don't care. I love you because God loves you. And any Christian that would act in a hateful way towards any other human being is shameful and it's not the heart of Jesus Christ and you are a hypocrite. It's heavy, folks, heavy. But that's why, that's why Paul says, blameless, harmless, without rebuke, pure, innocent. This is how Christians live. You know why? Because he goes on to say that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And we get the opportunity to shine as light in the darkness. Turn over to Romans chapter 2. I want you to see this. <laughs>
Romans chapter 2, verse number 21. Paul's writing to the church at Rome, um, and he's, he's never actually visited the church at Rome before. And so the things he's saying are pretty harsh for a guy who's never actually been there. And as we looked at earlier, you know, he said, I, I heard that you guys have been obedient, and I'm thankful for that, but I would you be wise concerning that which is good and simple, that which is concerning evil. But here's what he says in verse number 21, Romans chapter 2, verse 21. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Hey, you call yourself a teacher. You got some learning that I think you should do on your own. You preachest that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou sayest that a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Hey, you say that these things are bad, but you're doing the exact same thing. You're calling people to live at a standard that you yourself are not holding yourself to. The word for fear of this would be hypocrisy. You're saying, oh, don't commit adultery, but you're committing adultery. You're saying don't steal, but you're the one that's out there stealing. And understand this. We right now in America are living in an unprecedented age in America. The things that are taking place have never happened in America before, ever. Historical times we're living in. But please understand that when it comes to world history, the things that we're going through is nothing different than what the Roman civilization went through. You think we live in a time of idolatry and sexual immorality and debauchery? You just need to read up your Roman history and find out these were vile individuals. Vile. And what, what is Paul saying? Guys, knock it off because you're not like them. And here's what he goes on. This is the most hurtful thing that he says in verse number 23. Uh, verse number 24. Thou, verse 23, thou makest the boast of thine law, but to break the law and dishonor God. You, you say, keep the law, but you don't. And here's what he says in verse 24. This is the hurtful part. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. God is a mockery. God is a joke. And people are blaspheming his name. And it's your fault. Knock it off. I can imagine how hard it was for them to read that. And again, my gut reaction to that would be like, who does Paul think he is? He don't know me. But what is that spirit? Spirit of pride, isn't it? But hypocrisy doesn't just hurt us. I've known people before who said, well, I don't care what people think about me. People in my, my office don't like me. It don't matter to me. Bro, we're not trying to get people to like you. We're trying to get people to love Jesus. This is not a popularity contest for you to win. It's to make the name of names great amongst you. That's what we're trying to do. So when you come off as the jerk in the office, please re realize you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting the name of Jesus. When you live in hypocrisy, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting the name of Jesus. And so for Christians who want to go and, and, and rail against homosexuality yet want to be involved in pornography on your own, hey, please understand, you're just living in hypocrisy. Somebody who wants to, to talk about, you know, filthy music on the, the, the radio and stuff like that, but you want to gossip and talk about everybody else's sin, please understand, you're part of the problem. We as Christians are called to be the solution. Hello? How do we do that? By living blameless, pure, holy, innocent lives without rebuke that don't need correction because we correct ourselves. That's how it works. And we need to understand that the effectiveness of the gospel is at stake. That when you have a guy that's living in gross, egregious sin, living in total opposition to God and his law, and just an overall scumbag who gets saved 
accepts Jesus Christ as Savior and continues to live in egregious sin, continues to live in opposition to God's law, and continues to be a scumbag, please understand, you did the gospel a great disservice because it hurts the testimony of the gospel. Because the gospel says Jesus changes people from the inside out. And when you're the same person that you used to be, you just said a prayer and got a ticket punched to heaven, you're not living like a real Christian, and it hurts the effectiveness of the gospel. You know the greatest power that the gospel has is in a transformed life. I'm so thankful for so many people at Hui Kala who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and have changed where people, when they come to church, I say, oh, so-and-so, I'm so glad they've been coming to our church. And they say, they're like not even the same person anymore. Like I don't even recognize them because they're so different than the way that they were before. I knew them when we were in college. I'm like, they're not even the same person anymore. That's how I know that the gospel's at work. And that is a testimony of the power of the gospel. Hey, we've got people who have changed jobs because they can't in good conscience do their work anymore because they're a Christian. I love that. I know people who, have, who used to go out and drink and party on the weekends and don't do that anymore because they're following Jesus. I love that. A transformed life is such an effective witness of the power of the gospel. But when nothing changes in your life, that causes people to scratch their head and say, wait a minute, you're a Christian, but you're continuing to live the same way? You call yourself a Christian, but you're continually late for work. You don't finish your projects. You take credit for the things that you didn't even work on. You say inappropriate things about the, the ladies in the office. I saw pornography on your phone the other day. And you're a Christian? I'm not buying this whole gospel thing. And one person's hypocrisy damages the effectiveness of the gospel. And let me just tell you, we can't afford that. We just can't afford it. <laughs> I've had people before. I've confronted them with their sin, with their hypocrisy, with the way that it's damaging the gospel. And I have one guy say to me, well, well fine, I'll just go to a different church then. <laughs> what? No, you're a walking cancer. And you take your hypocrisy to another church, you infect another church with your hypocrisy. You need to repent, get right with God, and live an authentic Christian life. Well, I'm not perfect. I know, just admit it and move on. Authenticity, transparency. That's what God calls us to, and that's what makes the gospel effective. We need to understand that the witness and the testimony of the church is at stake. I'm not talking about who we call a Baptist church. Well, that's important. If you've got a Who We Call sticker on your hydro flask on the back of your car, please understand that you, the way that you live your life and the way that you treat other people refre reflects directly upon this church and me as your pastor. I want you to understand that. But understand that the church at large, all believers worldwide, the choices that you make on a day-to-day -day basis affect everybody. And look, all you have to do in your browser is type in pastor scandal and hit search and your browser will explode with hypocrisy rife in the church. And that hurts me. That hurts you. That hurts our effectiveness. When people say, oh yeah, all churches just want your money. All Christians are fake. All pastors are sleeping with their secretary. That doesn't just hurt the knuckleheads that made poor decisions. It hurts everybody. It hurts the witness and the effectiveness of a church. And we can't afford it. The price is too high. So we need to live differently. We need to live above reproach. We need to live holy, righteous, blameless lives. And if you're living in hypocrisy, repent of it and just move on today.
Final thoughts and we're done. First of all, if we desire to make a difference in the world, we have to be different. Look, if you're involved in all the same sin that everybody else at work is, they don't care what you have to say. You're just another one of them. But if you can live differently, if you're not the griper, complainer, you're actually trying to find positivity and encourage others, you're different. And let me just tell you this right now, guys. If you don't curse at work, you're automatically different. When something bad happens, you go, well, that really stinks. People are like, what? Oh, that's a bummer. That automatically makes you weird. You got a picture of your wife on your desk at work, and you speak lovingly of your wife, automatically you're in a category of different. If your wife isn't the old lady and the ball and chain, you're automatically, if you reverence and respect your wife, you're automatically different. But it just starts there. Blameless, holy, pure, innocent. Different to draw the world to Christ. Look, if you're just like everybody else and you've got the same problems as everybody else and you're dealing with them the same way as everybody else, nobody needs what you have. Oh, Jesus is the answer. Really? How's it working out for you? Oh, Jesus can heal your marriage. What about your marriage? Your wife hates your guts. Oh, Jesus can change your life. What about you? But you see, to win the world to Christ, we've got to be different. Questions we need to ask ourselves. First of all, do I use my words consistently to encourage and build up? <laughs> my wife, I love her. She, uh, she encourages me. She keeps me accountable. Some days she sends text messages to me that say this. Please be nice to our kids today. <laughs> what? What, that, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? I know exactly what she's talking about. Instead of telling them the three things that they're doing that's going to completely ruin the rest of their life today, <laughs> I need to find three things that I say, hey, bud, great job. Keep it up. Am I using my words to encourage or am I a complainer? <laughs> I'm embarrassed that I need somebody to tell me to be nice to my kids. But I'm thankful that I have that level of accountability. Now, again, if I have pride, I'm going to say, Whoa, what have you done? Huh? What does that even mean, be nice? Like, I'm, I'm the epitome of nice. What are you talking about? Or I can say, thanks for the reminder, sweetheart, and change. Do I use my words to build up and encourage, or am I a complainer? Or am I one that's looking to stir up strife and drama? Next. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life that I need to make right? Is there anything that I'm kind of holding out on God with that I know this is wrong. I'm working on it slowly, sometimes, not really. But I know it's sin. I haven't confessed it, but I need to. Let me just tell you this. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a therapist. I've received no professional counseling training or anything like that. I'm a pastor, and I'm a really good friend. So if you ever want to talk about problems, I'm open to talk. I'm not a therapist, but I'll talk. But when people are struggling, one of the first questions that I ask them, is there any unconfessed sin in your life that you need to make right? Because... Unconfessed sin creates a pull between us and God. I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing it purposely. And that puts me at odds with God automatically. 
I'm putting on a facade like I have it all together, but I know I don't have it all together because this thing is in my life that I don't want to fix yet because it brings me great comfort. And hypocrisy creates a push-pull relationship between me and God. But here's the thing. Hypocrisy, unconfessed sin, always, 100% of the time, get this, steals your joy, snatches it. And if, if there's sin in your life that you think, oh, this sin brings me great comfort, it doesn't. It's wrecking your life. Just let it go. Next. Are there any areas in my life where I've excused or made peace for my own sin? It's not really that big of a deal. It's just a bad habit. I've kind of always been this way. Everybody's got their problems. This is just mine. You know, I only drink when I'm stressed or to unwind or in social settings or when I'm bored or when I'm, I'm at home alone or when I'm watching sports or when, you know, I only look at pornography when my, my needs aren't being met uh, by, by my spouse or one of these days when I get married, I won't need to look at pornography anymore. So I'm, I'm okay with this right now. And we just continue to excuse our sin and make excuses for it instead of calling it what it is sexual deviancy, sexual immorality. And we make excuses for our sin. Is there any areas of your life or any sin that you're making excuses for, not willing to call it what it is? This next one's really important. Are people drawn to Jesus or pushed away from Jesus because of my life? Is my life like a tractor beam pulling people into Jesus Christ? Like the more that people know me, the more do they love Jesus? Or does my life actually repel people from Jesus, push people away? I want my life to draw people to Christ. That the more that people know me, the more I want them to know Jesus. The more that people see my life and inspect my life, I want them to see Jesus at work in my life and say, hey, I need that, I want that. You see, we as Christians sometimes get scared because we think, well, if I call myself a Christian and I raise the Christian flag at work, that that's who I am, people are going to be like inspecting my life and like watching me like I'm in a glass house. Yes, good. You know why? Because when you chose to be a Christian, you chose to live holy, blameless, righteous, pure, innocent, without rebuke, unblemished life. So that when people do examine your life further, they'll see good stuff. They'll see Jesus at work, and my life will draw people to Christ. But if you're living in hypocrisy, you've got a standard for everybody else, but you don't want to meet that standard yourself. God has a standard for you. You're not interested in meeting that, but you want the facade that comes with it. Please understand, when you get exposed, and you will, guaranteed, when you get exposed for being a counterfeit, your life will repel people from Jesus Christ. Look, every church that blows up because the pastor had an affair, those 100 people that are in the church don't go to some other church next Sunday. Some of them will quit on Jesus forever and never go back. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. No, 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 please understand, this has direct implications on you and your home and your children and your marriage and your workplace and your community with your neighbors. It's like reaches everywhere. You say, well, that's a heavy burden to bear. I know, I'm thankful that you don't have to bear it alone. Jesus has promised to be with you and to, to bear your burden for you. You've got a group of people here that we call a family that love you and care about you and we're all just trying to do it together. Does that mean there's no hypocrites in this church? Nope. But I hope after today we'll be able to self-identify and say, hey, I've been living in hypocrisy and I'm sorry. 
I'm so thankful for our small groups that we have. And if you're not part of a small group, you need to get in one this week. It's a great way to build community, get to know other people in our church and grow as a Christian. But I'm thankful for our small groups are a place of transparency and honesty. Do we have people in our church who say, hey, you know, pray for me. I've been struggling with alcohol and I got drunk last weekend. I'm trying to stop. And people go, yeah, I want to pray for that this week. (laughs) We've never had somebody go, did he just say what I think he said? And then get on the phone. So-and-so just confessed that they got drunk last weekend. No, we say, hey, we're going to pray with you on that. Good for you. Thanks for sharing. A few weeks ago in, in, in our small group, we had somebody who said, hey, pray for me. I think I'm, I feel depression coming on. I'm trying to keep it at bay, but I just feel like it's on the back of my neck. And just pray for me that I'll have the strength that I need to persevere. Man, praying for that this week. And I'm encouraged by that because I find a lot of transparency in our small groups here. And again, not to say that, that our church is better than every other church on the planet, uh, but I love the transparency that we have because I've been a part of small groups before that when we pray, everybody says, I'm good, but if you could pray for my Aunt Gertrude, she's got a cat that's got hairballs, and they might have to do surgery in a couple weeks, but I'm good. You know, Don't pray for me, I'm good, but pray for Aunt Gertrude. It's just like there's no transparency there because everybody's good. But you're in a place where everybody has admitted that we are not good. A, a church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And we are here because we need God's help. And none of us are okay, and that's why we're here. And you're in a safe space to be able to take off the mask, maybe for the first time in your life, and say, I'm not okay, I need help. And that's awesome. And I want to help you do that. I really do. But you've got to answer this question. This might be the hardest one. Is there any hypocrisy in my own life? (laughs) Is there any areas where I have a standard that I'm not meeting for myself? Or maybe a standard that I'm imposing for others, but I'm not willing to meet that myself. If so, would you fix that? I remember when we started Huikala, I'd never served as a a pastor before Huikala. And I I prayed and I asked my wife to help keep me accountable to this. That the person that my kids saw standing behind a pulpit on Sunday morning was the same guy that they had dinner with on Tuesday night. It was the same guy that went to their basketball games on Thursday. It was the same guy that took him to school on Friday mornings. Same guy, all the time. Because I didn't want to be one guy in church and put on my pastor hat and be somebody special and then go home and take off my, my pastor hat and put on my dad hat and be a jerk. I just want to be consistent. And so I'm a, a jerk as a pastor sometimes too. So uh, I'm not, not perfect. But I want to be consistent. I don't want there to be church dad and home dad. It's just dad. I don't want to be the church husband and then the home husband. I want to be consistently husband. I don't want to be church Christian and work Christian. Just Christian. But first I've got to identify, is there hypocrisy in my life? And, and there's been times in my life where I had to come to grips with there was hypocrisy and I had to deal with it. And so I would encourage you, if you find yourself in any of this today with the Holy Spirit like poking at you, would you respond to that? I realize today's message has been heavy. I I haven't sugarcoated anything, and I appreciate you being willing to receive it. But sometimes we've got to ask ourselves hard questions to get the type of results that we want to see. And so today's message has been heavy. I'll give you that. But now's the time to be honest. Is there anything in my life that needs to change? And I want to encourage you, if there is, make it right today. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you're not saved, there's never been a time, a date, a place in your life where you're born again. Be saved today. 
No man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And friend, you can't see lasting change in your life and you will never see heaven unless you're saved. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that heaven's your home, hang out for a bit afterwards. Talk with me. I'll have you talk with, if you're a guy, I'll have you talk with one of our guys, or a lady, talk with one of our ladies. I'd be happy to sit down with you and open the Bible and show you how you could know for sure that you're saved. But for those of us that call ourselves Christians, let's put on the name badge this week that says Christian, and let's live up to our name. You say, I don't know if I can do that. You can't. But it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And so God wants to do the work in you if you'll allow him to change you. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.